Jesus the Christ by James E. Talmadge Read by Bradley Ross The text of this book is available from Project Gutenberg at gutenberg.org Chapter 12 Early Incidents in Our Lord's Public Ministry First Clearing of the Temple Soon after the marriage festivities in Cana, Jesus, accompanied by his disciples, as also by his mother and other members of the family, went to Capernaum, a town pleasantly situated near the northerly end of the Sea of Galilee, or Lake of Gennesaret, and the scene of many of our Lord's miraculous works. Indeed, it came to be known as his own city. Because of the unbelief of its people, it became a subject of lamentation to Jesus, when in sorrow he prefigured the judgment that would befall the place. The exact site of the city is at present unknown. On this occasion, Jesus tarried but a few days at Capernaum, for the time of the annual Passover was near, and in compliance with Jewish law and custom, he went up to Jerusalem. The Synoptic Gospels, which are primarily devoted to the labors of Christ in Galilee, contain no mention of his attendance at the Paschal Festival between his twelfth year and the time of his death. To John alone we are indebted for the record of this visit at the beginning of Christ's public ministry. It is not improbable that Jesus had been present at other Passovers during the eighteen years over which the evangelists pass in complete and reverent silence. But at any or all such earlier visits, he, not being thirty years old, could not have assumed the right or privilege of a teacher without contravening established customs. It is worth our attention to note that on this, the first recorded appearance of Jesus in the temple subsequent to his visit as a boy, he should resume his father's business, where he had before been engaged. It was in his father's service that he had been found in discussion with the doctors of the law, and in his father's cause he was impelled to action on this later occasion. The multitudinous and mixed attendance at the Passover celebration has already received passing mention. Some of the unseemly customs that prevailed are to be held in mind. The law of Moses had been supplemented by a cumulative array of rules, and the rigidly enforced requirements as to sacrifices and tribute had given rise to a system of sale and barter within the sacred precincts of the house of the Lord. In the outer courts were stalls of oxen, pens of sheep, cages of doves and pigeons, and the ceremonial fitness of these sacrificial victims was cried aloud by the sellers and charged for in full measure. It was the custom also to pay the yearly poll tribute of the sanctuary at this season, the ransom offering required of every male in Israel and amounting to half a shekel, for each, irrespective of his relative poverty or wealth. This was to be paid after the shekel of the sanctuary, which limitation, as rabbis had ruled, meant payment in temple coin. Ordinary money, varieties of which bore effigies and inscriptions of heathen import, was not acceptable, and as a result, money changers plied a thriving trade on the temple grounds. Righteously indignant at what he beheld, zealous for the sanctity of his father's house, Jesus essayed to clear the place, and, pausing not for argument in words, he promptly applied physical force, almost approaching violence, the one form of figurative language that those corrupt barterers for pelf could best understand. 
hastily improvising a whip of small cords. He laid about him on every side, liberating and driving out sheep, oxen, and human traffickers, upsetting the tables of the exchangers and pouring out their heterogeneous accumulations of coin. With tender regard for the imprisoned and helpless birds, he refrained from assaulting their cages, but to their owners he said, Take these things hence. And to all the greedy traders, he thundered forth a command that made them quail. Make not my father's house an house of merchandise. His disciples saw in the incident a realization of the psalmist's line. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The Jews, by which term we mean the priestly officials and rulers of the people, dared not protest this vigorous action on the ground of unrighteousness. They, learned in the law, stood self-convicted of corruption, avarice, and of personal responsibility for the temple's defilement. That the sacred premises were in sore need of cleansing, they all knew. The one point upon which they dared to question the cleanser as to why he should thus take to himself the doing of what was their duty, they practically submitted to his sweeping intervention as that of one whose possible investiture of authority they might be yet compelled to acknowledge. Their tentative submission was based on fear, and that, in turn, upon their sin-convicted consciences. Christ prevailed over those haggling Jews by virtue of the eternal principle that right is mightier than wrong, and of the psychological fact that consciousness of guilt robs the culprit of valor, when the imminence of just retribution is apparent to his soul. Yet fearful lest he should prove to be a prophet with power, such as no living priest or rabbi even professed to be, they timidly asked for credentials of his authority. What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Curtly, and with scant respect for this demand, so common to wicked and adulterous men, Jesus replied, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Blinded by their own craft, unwilling to acknowledge the Lord's authority, yet fearful of the possibility that they were opposing one who had the right to act, the perturbed officials found in the words of Jesus reference to the imposing temple of masonry within whose walls they stood. They took courage. This strange Galilean, who openly flouted their authority, spoke irreverently of their temple, the visible expression of the profession they so proudly flaunted in words, that they were children of the covenant, worshippers of the true and living God, and hence superior to all heathen and pagan peoples. With seeming indignation they rejoined, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days?' Though frustrated in their desire to arouse popular indignation against Jesus at this time, the Jews refused to forget or forgive his words. When afterward he stood an undefended prisoner, undergoing an illegal pretense of trial before a sin-impeached court, the blackest perjury uttered against him was that of the false witnesses who testified, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and within three days I will build another made without hands. And while he hung in mortal suffering, the scoffers who passed by the cross wagged their heads and taunted the dying Christ with, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days. 
save thyself, and come down from the cross. Yet his words to the Jews, who had demanded the credentials of a sign, had no reference to the colossal temple of Herod, but to the sanctuary of his own body, in which, more literally than in the man-built holy of holies, dwelt the ever-living spirit of the eternal God. The Father is in me, was his doctrine. He spake of the temple of his body, the real tabernacle of the Most High. This reference to the destruction of the temple of his body and the renewal thereof after three days is his first recorded prediction relating to his appointed death and resurrection. Even the disciples did not comprehend the profound meaning of his words until after his resurrection from the dead. Then they remembered and understood. The priestly Jews were not as dense as they appeared to be, for we find them coming to Pilate while the body of the crucified Christ lay in the tomb, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Though we have many records of Christ having said that he would die and on the third day would rise again, the plainest of such declarations were made to the apostles rather than openly to the public. The Jews who waited upon Pilate almost certainly had in mind the utterance of Jesus when they had stood, nonplussed before him, at the clearing of the temple courts. Such an accomplishment as that of defying priestly usage and clearing the temple purlieus by force could not fail to impress, with varied effect, the people in attendance at the feast. And they, returning to their homes in distant and widely separated provinces, would spread the fame of the courageous Galilean prophet. Many in Jerusalem believed on him at the time, mainly because they were attracted by the miracles he wrought. But he refused to commit himself unto them, realizing the insecure foundation of their professions. Popular adulation was foreign to his purpose. He wanted no motley following, but would gather around him such as received the testimony of his messiahship from the Father. He knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The incident of Christ's forcible clearing of the temple is a contradiction of the traditional conception of him as one so gentle and unassertive in demeanor as to appear unmanly. Gentle he was, and patient under affliction, merciful and long-suffering in dealing with contrite sinners yet stern and inflexible in the presence of hypocrisy, and unsparing in his denunciation of persistent evildoers. His mood was adapted to the conditions to which he addressed himself. Tender words of encouragement, or burning expletives of righteous indignation, issued with equal fluency from his lips. His nature was no poetic conception of cherubic sweetness ever-present, but that of a man with emotions and passions essential to manhood and manliness. He, who often wept with compassion, at other times evinced in word and action the righteous anger of a god. But of all his passions, however gently they rippled or strongly surged, he was ever master. Contrast, the gentle Jesus moved to hospitable service by the needs of a festal party in Cana, and the indignant Christ plying his whip, and amidst commotion and turmoil of his own making, driving cattle and men before him as an unclean herd. Jesus and Nicodemus That the wonderful deeds wrought by Christ at and about the time of this memorable Passover had led some of the learned 
in addition to many of the common people, to believe in him, is evidenced by the fact that Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee in profession and who occupied a high place as one of the rulers of the Jews, came to him on an errand of inquiry. There is significance in the circumstance that this visit was made at night. Apparently, the man was impelled by a genuine desire to learn more of the Galilean, whose works could not be ignored, though pride of office and fear of possible suspicion that he had become attached to the new prophet led him to veil his undertaking with privacy. Addressing Jesus by the title he himself bore, and which he regarded as one of honor and respect, he said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Whether his use of the plural pronoun we indicates that he was sent by the Sanhedrin or by the Society of Pharisees, the members of which were accustomed to so speak, as representatives of the order, or was employed in the rhetorical sense as indicating himself alone, is of little importance. He acknowledged Jesus as a teacher come from God, and gave reasons for so regarding him. Whatever a feeble faith might have been stirring in the heart of the man, such was founded on the evidence of miracles, supported mainly by the psychological effect of signs and wonders. We must accord him credit for sincerity and honesty of purpose. Without waiting for specific questions, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus appears to have been puzzled. He asked how such a rejuvenation was possible. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? We do Nicodemus no injustice in assuming that he, as a rabbi, a man learned in the scriptures, ought to have known that there was other meaning in the words of Jesus than that of a mortal literal birth. Moreover, were it possible that a man could be born a second time literally and in the flesh, how could such a birth profit him in spiritual growth? It would be but a re-entrance on the stage of physical existence, not an advancement. The man knew that the figure of a new birth was common in the teachings of his day. Every proselyte to Judaism was spoken of at the time of his conversion as one newborn. The surprise manifested by Nicodemus was probably due, in part at least, to the universality of the requirement as announced by Christ. Were the children of Abraham included? The traditionalism of centuries was opposed to any such view, Pagans had to be born again through a formal acceptance of Judaism if they would become even small sharers of the blessings that belonged as a heritage to the house of Israel. But Jesus seemed to treat all alike, Jews and Gentiles, heathen idolaters, and the people who, with their lips at least, called Jehovah God. Jesus repeated the declaration, and with precision, emphasizing by the impressive, verily, verily, the greatest lesson that had ever saluted the ears of this ruler in Israel. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That the new birth, thus declared to be absolutely essential as a condition of entrance into the kingdom of God, applicable to every man without limitation or qualification, was a spiritual regeneration was next explained to the wondering rabbi. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. Still the learned Jew pondered, yet failed to comprehend. Possibly the sound of the night breeze was heard at that moment. If so, Jesus was but utilizing the incident, as a skillful teacher would do, to impress a lesson when he continued, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Plainly stated, Nicodemus was given to understand that his worldly learning and official status availed him nothing in any effort to understand the things of God. Through the physical sense of hearing, he knew that the wind blew. By sight, he could be informed of its passage. Yet what did he know of the ultimate cause of even this simple phenomenon? If Nicodemus would really be instructed in spiritual matters, he had to divest himself of the bias due to his professed knowledge of lesser things. Rabbi and eminent Sanhedrist though he was, there at the humble lodging of the teacher from Galilee, he was in the presence of a master. In the bewilderment of ignorance, he asked, How can these things be? The reply must have been humbling, if not humiliating, to the man. Thou art a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Plainly, a knowledge of some of the fundamental principles of the gospel had been before accessible. Nicodemus was held in reproach for his lack of knowledge, particularly as he was a teacher of the people. Then our Lord graciously expounded at greater length, testifying that he spoke from sure knowledge based upon what he had seen while Nicodemus and his fellows were unwilling to accept the witness of his words. Furthermore, Jesus averred his mission to be that of the Messiah, and specifically foretold his death and the manner thereof, that he, the Son of Man, must be lifted up, even as Moses had lifted the serpent in the wilderness as a prototype, whereby Israel might escape the fatal plague. The purpose of the foreappointed death of the Son of Man was that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For to this end, and out of his boundless love to man, had the Father devoted his only begotten Son. And further, while it was true that in his mortal advent the Son had not come to sit as a judge, but to teach, persuade, and save, nevertheless, condemnation would surely follow rejection of that Savior, for light had come, and wicked men avoided the light, hating it in their preference for the darkness, in which they hoped to hide their evil deeds. Here again, perhaps, Nicodemus experienced a twinge of conscience. For had not he been afraid to come in the light? And had he not chosen the dark hours for his visit? Our Lord's concluding words combined both instruction and reproof. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. The narrative of this interview between Nicodemus and Christ constitutes one of our most instructive and precious scriptures relating to the absolute necessity of unreserved compliance with the laws and ordinances of the gospel as the means indispensable to salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, through whom alone men may gain eternal life. 
the forsaking of sin by resolute turning away from the gross darkness of evil to the saving light of righteousness. The unqualified requirement of a new birth through baptism in water, and this of necessity by the mode of immersion, since otherwise the figure of a birth would be meaningless. And the completion of the new birth through baptism by the Spirit. All these principles are taught herein in such simplicity and plainness as to make plausible no man's excuse for ignorance. If Jesus and Nicodemus were the only persons present at the interview, John, the writer, must have been informed thereof by one of the two. As John was one of the early disciples, afterward one of the apostles, and as he was distinguished in the apostolic company by his close personal companionship with the Lord, it is highly probable that he heard the account from the lips of Jesus. It was evidently John's purpose to record the great lesson of the occasion rather than to tell the circumstantial story. The record begins and ends with equal abruptness. Unimportant incidents are omitted. Every line is of significance. The writer fully realized the deep import of his subject and treated it accordingly. Later mention of Nicodemus tends to confirm the estimate of the man as he appears in this meeting with Jesus, that of one who was conscious of a belief in the Christ, but whose belief was never developed into such genuine and virile faith as would impel to acceptance and compliance irrespective of cost or consequence. From City to Country Leaving Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples went into the rural parts of Judea, and there tarried, doubtless, preaching as opportunity was found or made. And those who believed on him were baptized. The prominent note of his early public utterances was that of his forerunner in the wilderness. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Baptist continued his labors, though doubtless since his recognition of the greater one, for whose coming he had been sent to prepare, he considered the baptism he administered as of somewhat different significance. He had at first baptized in preparation for one who was to come. Now he baptized repentant believers unto him who had come. Disputation had arisen between some of John's zealous adherents and one or more Jews concerning the doctrine of purifying. The context leaves little room for doubt that a question was involved as to the relative merits of John's baptism and that administered by the disciples of Jesus. With excusable ardor and well-intended zeal for their master, the disciples of John, who had been embroiled in the dispute, came to him saying, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John's supporters were concerned at the success of one whom they regarded in some measure as a rival to their beloved teacher. Had not John given to Jesus his first attestation? He to whom thou bearest witness, said they, not deigning even to designate Jesus by name. Following the example of Andrew and of John the future apostle, the people were leaving the Baptist and gathering about the Christ. John's reply to his ardent followers constitutes a sublime instance of self-abnegation. His answer was to this effect. A man receives only as God gives unto him. It is not given to me to do the work of Christ. Ye yourselves are witnesses that I disclaimed being the Christ, and that I said I was one sent before him. 
He is as the bridegroom. I am only as the friend of the bridegroom, his servant. And I rejoice greatly in being thus near him. His voice gives me happiness, and thus my joy is fulfilled. He of whom you speak stands at the beginning of his ministry. I near the end of mine. He must increase, but I must decrease. He came from heaven, and therefore is superior to all things of earth. Nevertheless, men refuse to receive his testimony. To such a one, the Spirit of God is not apportioned. It is his in full measure. The Father loveth him, the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. And he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abiding on him. In such a reply, under the existent conditions, is to be found the spirit of true greatness, and of the humility that could rest only on a conviction of divine assurance to the Baptist as to himself and the Christ. In more than one sense was John great among all who are born of women. He had entered upon his work when sent of God so to do. He realized that his work had been in a measure superseded, and he patiently awaited his release. In the meantime, continuing in the ministry, directing souls to his master. The beginning of the end was near. He was soon seized and thrown into a dungeon, where, as shall be shown, he was beheaded to sate the vengeance of a corrupt woman whose sins he had boldly denounced. The Pharisees observed with increasing apprehension the growing popularity of Jesus, evidenced by the fact that even more followed him and accepted baptism at the hands of his disciples than had responded to the Baptist's call. Open opposition was threatened, and as Jesus desired to avert the hindrance to his work, which such persecution at that time would entail, he withdrew from Judea and retired to Galilee, journeying by way of Samaria. This return to the northern province was effected after the Baptist had been cast into prison. Thank you.